Amen. Good morning, Pillar Church. Pastor Kanan here. Uh, this morning, I'm like, I'm trying to hold in the jittery excitement I have uh, because this morning we get to start a brand new sermon series. And if you peep the email, then you already know. Um, but we're starting a brand new sermon series this morning. If I turn this on, then we can get it. Hold on. In the Gospel of John. Woo! Y'all don't know about John. That's, that's what I expect. By the end of this, y'all going to be like, whoo, just like me. The Gospel of John, I'm even titled it, That You May Believe. And we pulled that right out of the text of the Gospel of John. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're not going to start just expositing and, and walking through verse by verse the Gospel of John this morning. This morning, we're going to have like a high 30,000 foot flyover of just the, the, the a common... So we have a common place to start when we start looking at the Gospel of John. I'm excited about it. I'm very excited about it. Um, if you don't know, uh, you, you may have heard me tell this story before. Uh, this is the very gospel that the Lord used to save me. It was this gospel that the Lord used to redeem my soul. And so this gospel in particular has a unique place in my heart. And I might need to ask Pastor Eric to preach the, the verse that the Lord used. Because y'all see me a couple Easter's ago. I couldn't even get through because that verse get me sobbing like a little baby, man. But um. We're going we're gonna to walk through the Gospel of John, so go ahead and turn there, even though we're not going to start at the beginning of John. We're going to start towards the end. But I want to start by answering some basic questions on, uh, about this Gospel. Firstly, what, what is a Gospel? Now, for those of you who don't know or are not familiar, don't, don't understand what we call Christianese, a Gospel is different than the Gospel. And I just want to make a distinction there. The gospel is the perfect life of Jesus, the sacrificial death of Jesus, and the power of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. That, that right there encompasses not everything that God has done for us, but the means by which we are redeemed from our sin, from Satan, from God's wrath, the perfect life, the sacrificial death, and the powerful resurrection. You can't forget the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. What that does then, that is vicariously applied to the life of a person, cleansing us and covering us of all our sin and quickening us to spiritual life. Okay? So somehow the Spirit of God takes the perfect life, takes the sacrificial death and the powerful resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and he applies it to a man or to a woman. And it quickens us to life. It awakens us to spiritual life for the first time. That person thus responds to God. After being quickened to spiritual life, we respond to God, his act of graceful love, by turning from our sin and entrusting ourselves to the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is a response of God's awakening of your soul. When you see the beauty of who Jesus is and what he's gone through and done to redeem you, you respond to God with repentance and praise and trust in his name. And then part of what he, he does for us in that redemption is he, he gives us this freedom from sin, that all-elusive freedom from the powers that hold us 
in this life and in the life to come. He gives us, this is loaded. This right, the second one is loaded. He gives us communion with God. That's both in this life and in the life to come. You might say, where's heaven on the list? There it is. We are redeemed. We have communion with God. This is the sweet, sweet truth of this morning. That's what we want. This is what we're aiming for. And then, beloved, this hits home for those of us who are lacking family, for those of us who feel alone or abandoned, those of us who are just in heartache because we don't have the smoothest relationship with those around us, or you just feel you're adopted into a family. Now, your physical family fights. Unfortunately, God's family fights, too. But God is transforming our souls. He's changing us from the inside out. And you are not alone. You don't suffer alone. And you share your life with those other believers with you who understand your struggles and your strife. You're adopted into a family who will watch your back and and lend you their faith when you don't have any. I be needing that. I know y'all be needing that. When you don't have any, you need somebody to pray for you because you ain't got nothing, no gas in the tank. That's what the family does. This is God's rescue plan. That gospel that I just outlined is God's amazing rescue plan for all of us here. Either we've been rescued by that formula, by that truth, by that life, that death and that resurrection, or we are to be rescued from it. In either scenario, that's the thing that's applied to the soul that brings life to you. And it feels so good. But that's not to be confused with what we call a gospel or one of the four gospels in the Bible. If you've ever opened your Bible and you flip through, you're going to see four books that are called the gospels. Now, that doesn't mean that there are four gospel messages. There's one gospel truth, only one, which was outlined here. However, the gospels, what what those are, those are accounts of Jesus's life and ministry. They're not necessarily biographies, right? In fact, we know very little about Jesus's childhood. Very, very little, almost nothing. But there are accounts of Jesus's life. This is what he did. This is what he said. This is what he taught. This is what he expected of his disciples. That's what the Gospels are. And there are four of those in the Bible. And I want to highlight those so that we have an understanding of what we're looking at. Those four Gospels in your Bible are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each gospel is written by somebody to somebody for a particular reason. Okay, they're not carbon copies of one another. They're emphasizing different realities of the person of Jesus based on whom they're speaking to and based on the perspective of the one who's speaking. If I'm going to share the gospel with with this person, I'm going to share it differently than I would perhaps with this person because this person has struggled in this way and they need God to redeem and he shows himself powerful in this way. But I may be talking to this person and this person needs to know this particular truth or element of the gospel that will bring joy to their soul and redemption to their spirit. Matthew, which is the first one in your copy of of, of the Bible, is written to a primarily Jewish audience. You've heard me say this before, but I'm giving you a little diagram so you can copy it if you want to take a picture. It's portraying Jesus as a king. Matthew portrays Jesus as the king, namely the king of the Jews, 
right? But he's betraying him. This is the king, okay? All bow to the king. That's what Matthew's trying to do. And so he actually quotes the most Old Testament out of everybody there. This percent unique, that means this is how much of this gospel you won't find in the other ones. So for almost half of Matthew, you're not going to find in these other gospels. Down here, these are like the key verses of the gospels. And these are subjective. The gospel writer didn't say, and this is my key verse, and then write it down. Okay, this is based off what we can, what we can um, pull from the text. The text is all pointing us in this direction, and so this theme encapsulates, or this verse encapsulates the whole direction. Mark, which most scholars believe is the first gospel that was written, is written to a Roman audience. It portrays Jesus as a servant. Now, you can tell a lot of this from the genealogy. In Matthew's gospel, the genealogy in the beginning of the gospel in chapter 3 goes all the way back, and it's purposely going through the kings. It goes through King David all the way down and so it's trying to put, and it starts at Abraham. It goes to Abraham. And so he's portraying him as the king of the Jews. Well, in Mark, there is no genealogy because the genealogy of a servant doesn't matter. Only 7%, only 7% of Mark is unique, which means you're going to find most of what you read in Mark in the other gospel somewhere. So when you read Mark and then read another gospel, you're going to be reading a lot of the same stuff because only 7% of it is only in Mark. That key verse that the Son of Man didn't... Uh, did not come to, to uh, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to save the many, is uh, Mark ten forty five. Luke has a primarily Greek audience. Now, to be very accurate, he's only writing to one person. The dude's name is Theophilus. That's a Greek name. <laughs> if you ever heard a Greek name, that's a Greek name, Theophilus. Wow, it's a great name, by the way. But by and large, he's writing to this dude, Theophilus, and to the Greek audience as a whole, and that's his perspective, and he's portraying Jesus as the perfect man. And you know that why? Because his genealogy in chapter 4 goes all the way back to, to, to Adam. It just, he just rides it all the way back, tries to give you the whole spiel from Adam to Jesus. Here's this perfect man. And then the gospel we're going to look at, the gospel of John. The gospel of John, I put this in, in brackets, is written to really a mixed audience. His primary audience is Jewish. However, when you read the Gospel of John, you're going to notice that he interprets a lot of the Jewish customs. Now, he's interpreting them because he expects that the readers of this Gospel are not going to know them. And so as he says, he'll, he'll say a term and then he'll say, this means that. Why? Because the Gentile cats don't know the Jewish customs. And he knows the Gentile cats are going to be reading his Gospel. And so most people will say that the Gospel of John is written for the, for the world, for the masses, for the most broad audience of all. It portrays, the, the aim of the author of John is to portray Jesus as God. That's his whole thing. And we'll see that next week as we begin to dive into the first few verses, that if you want to call this a genealogy, his, his genealogy is eternal. And he'll show us that next week. 92% of what is in the Gospel of John is not in the rest. Which means when you read the Gospel of John, you're reading stuff that you're probably not going to find in the other Gospels. Every now and again, there's a story or two that's the same. Maybe a slightly different perspective. But what we're going to look at this morning is John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. This is John's thesis. This is John's purpose. This is why John wrote the letter. So turn in your copy of God's word to John chapter 20. We're going to start at the end. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. And if you don't have a copy, we have it on the screen for you. 
This is why John wrote this letter. Okay, this is the most powerful, one of the most powerful realities of this book. Jesus performed, John 20, 30, 31, verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. What is he saying right off rip? Jesus did a lot. Okay, the next chapter, he basically repeats that. Jesus did a ton of things, okay? That's not written in this book. But, verse 31, listen to this. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The whole purpose of the Gospel of of John is that you may read it and come to faith in the person of Jesus. This is his goal. This is the gospel that you read over your kids because your desired end is that they come to faith in the person of Jesus. This is the gospel that you pray over your children, whether they're there or they're not. You pray this gospel over your kids because the whole aim of the gospel, not that any no other word of the truth, truth of Scripture can do this, but, but John makes it explicit. I'm writing these things. I'm, I'm selective on purpose. I'm purposely, John was there for everything. He said, oh man, I could tell you a million things. That's what he said. There's so many things he did in my presence. I done seen him do all kinds of things, but these things are here. Pay attention. I wrote these things so that you may have life. Beloved, my prayer is bound in these words. In these words, I'm sorry, hold on. These words hit because that more came true for me. I didn't even know that verse existed until I finally got to the end and I was like, it's a setup. <laughs> God used this gospel to redeem my soul. And my prayer is that he will do it for you too. John's goal is that someone would read this book, see Jesus, not see your problems, not see your shortcomings, not see the obstacles. That's what you see. He wants to take your eyes off of all of that for a second and say, behold the mighty, mighty king. Behold our God, Jesus. He wants you to see Jesus, to believe on and in him, and thus receive life in his name. That's what he wants for you, beloved. That's what I want for you. That's what I want for my kids. That's what I want for my family. So I'm going to pray that that verse over y'all and and this this gospel over y'all throughout this this very, very long series. Beloved, we went through Galatians. It took a year. That was six chapters. I'm sorry. We're going to be in John for a little bit, beloved. Let's look at the beginning of verse 31. But these things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is here. We're going to look at this. The Messiah. Now, growing up in the 21st century and having, a, 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 especially if you grew up in Texas, you got this Christianese stuff, this lingo in your head. And every time you hear that word Messiah, your mind automatically turns to the person of Jesus. Well, that word is actually not an uncommon word. And it was used way broader than just the person of Jesus back in the first century. It was used of kings. It was used of prophets. It was used of priests. They're all referred to in one way, shape, or form as messiahs. Here's a definition of what messiah is. 
Messiah is just the Hebrew form of the word Christ. So Jesus Christ, Christ isn't his last name, right? Which my kids are like, yeah, it's his last name, Christ. That's what they put on their last name. <laughs> no, it's his title, right? It means anointed one. It means leader. But look at the last element of the definition. I can get you the syntax, but savior of a particular people group. That's what Messiah means. Redeemer or savior of a particular people. And by God's grace, what's beautiful about the, um, about the skip ahead and all this stuff, what's beautiful about the gospel is that their people group is not defined by their ethnic realities. The particular people group is not defined based on any physical characteristic whatsoever. It's by those who have entrusted themselves to Jesus, whatever they may look like. No matter the age or the depth, it's beauty. That's the particular people. We are a diverse people made into a particular people, the ones who have been commonly redeemed by the blood of Jesus. It's so beautiful, the gospel. But this is what Messiah means, anointed one, leader. In fact, we'll, we'll see that even King Cyrus, he was the king of Persia. He was called God's Messiah. Look, Isaiah 45, verse 1. The Lord said to Cyrus, his anointed, that word is Messiah. Okay, so when we're seeing that word, that word is not, the, this isn't the first time they're using the term Messiah. Okay, it's a common term. Why is God calling Cyrus his Messiah? Because that would almost seem blasphemous. If you didn't know the term was common, you'd be like, hold on, hold on, there's one Messiah. But now that you know it's common, why would he say that? Cyrus is described as an anointed one or as a Messiah by God because he's been assigned to conquer Babylon and set free the Jewish exiles. Cyrus was God's instrument to free his people from bondage. Come on. Cyrus was God's instrument to free his people from bondage. Fast forward to the person and work in the time of Jesus who enters into the world beholding a people who are all bound by something, whether it be physical, emotional, mental, or otherwise spiritual. A people who are enslaved by the consequences of what sin has done to them. Some of you or some of us are enslaved by this thing we call popular opinion. If the crowd moves that way, we move that way. People pleasers is what we call them. And you almost can't get it off. Some of us are slaves to our political parties. I could harp on that. Beloved, don't be disenfranchised by being a slave to a, to a particular political party. They don't care about you anyway. <laughs> I don't care what side you're on. They're just trying to win. Okay? But don't, be, don't follow a party blindly. Don't follow a leader blindly. But I grew up in a particular context where there was one particular party that no matter who was running, we would just vote that party. Didn't matter, irrespective of anything they could have done or said. I grew up in bondage to a particular political party, and I carried that on into adulthood until one day I realized, don't nobody, don't nobody care about me but the person. Hold on. What am I doing? Some of us are, and this is for those Christians who want to be cool, you're enslaved to the culture. You want the culture to think well of you. 
And so you're willing to capitulate, change how you dress, how you talk, and all that other stuff so you can fit into whatever the latest fad is. However, we talked about the culture bus. The second you say something that doesn't align, they throw you off and run you over. But you are a warrior for the culture until that point. But most of us, dare I say almost all of us, are enslaved to that particular word that you were called when you were a kid. That word that they called you, that you took into adulthood because you started to maybe unconsciously believe that about yourself. And now you act and you work and you play and you speak as if that word is true. And your whole life is defined by proving that word wrong rather than what God may have. So I'll I'll tell you my word. I got called dumb a lot. In fact, I heard it from my own family. Boy, that boy dumb. So my whole life I strive for academic excellence. I strive to be the most beastly of beasts in my whole family when it came to anything I was learning. Why? Because I was trying to gain their approval. Didn't even work. All that hard work for nothing. Before I move on, I just want you to consider, what's, the, what's that word that, that got you? You got it. You have it. You were called this or you were called that. What is it? Name it. And we're going to practice over the course of a couple weeks of giving that to Jesus and not taking that off of our definition list. That doesn't define us. Some of us are enslaved to pornography and we don't want to tell anybody. But it got you. Some of us are enslaved by the fear of death, so we do everything we can just to live and survive, whether it be compromise or what have you. We're slaves to sin and unbelief. Now, here's the reality, beloved. That's all of us. But what we're not accustomed to is admitting the fact that something has us bound. That's something that we just don't do. Why? Because we're a prideful bunch of people. And so what we don't do is tell others what we're enslaved by. We don't tell others what, what, what we can't let go of, or better yet, what won't let go of us. We don't want anybody to know our, this is what we call the dirty laundry. You have it. There's something that, that's trying to get you, that has you, that, that provokes you constantly. You even use it as motivation to achieve some goal. What is it? Want to be free from it? I got good news for you. John wrote this gospel to tell you of a Messiah. A Messiah is a person or a leader who has come to set a particular people group free from whatever realities have bound them, even the realities of sin and unbelief. He's greater than any prophet, any priest, any king of old. He's one with the power to break free those emotional chains that got you, those physical chains or otherwise spiritual chains. He has the power to forgive the secret sins. He has the power to mend those traumatic wounds. This is a God who sees you. You can't hide in the crowd with him. He knows you. He loves you. And he died, gave his life for the likes of you. He's a far greater Messiah than Cyrus or any other prophet of any age or generation. He's fulfilling this thing with power. He's a mighty redeemer with the power to save, and he's not your average Messiah. Indeed, he's the very son of God. 
And that's what the very next part of the verse is. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, a much greater, better, stronger, robust, more robust Messiah. And he's also the son of God. What's crazy about the term son of God is that that, too, is not an uncommon term in the first century. We think we hear son of God. We think Jesus. But that's a very common term used in the first century. Again, Near Eastern kings and pharaohs would call themselves the son of God or they would call themselves God. So it's not an uncommon term, just like Messiah for them. They're reading and going, okay, he's calling himself the son of God. They understood that, or or God, they understood it to be equivalent. We actually see that term, uh, sons of God or the son of God, given to to people. You see it given to angels. You see it given to uh, people, angels. That's it. Sorry, I I feel like there's another category that I can't remember, but I think that's probably all the categories, people and angels, right? (laughs) Otherwise, it's God, so I don't know what else, not animals. But just like the term Messiah, there's a greater fulfillment in the person of Jesus. And, and here, here's how we know this. Anyone can assume a title. Anyone can declare themselves or declare somebody else to be God or the son of God. In fact, there are certain uh, people in our community and in communities around that actually call each other God. Yeah. What's good, God? If you don't know, then you, ain't part of, you haven't been a part of that community, but that's what they do. What's going on, God? That's a cheap snatching of a robust title. Trying to make ourselves feel or be something that we're not. Where in human history, though? Where in human history? Ooh, this is so good. I'm like. Listen to this. I'm going to read it so I don't mess this up. Where in human history is there a declaration from God himself? That, that they were indeed, and uniquely so, the Son of God, except for the person of Jesus. You hear that? Let me, oh, let me say again. Anybody can declare themselves or someone around them as God, but where in human history was there a declaration from God himself that they or that person was indeed, in a, in a unique way, the Son of God, except for the person of Jesus? Y'all remember the faithful day on the Mount of Transfiguration? where Jesus stands there with three of his disciples and there's a thunderous voice from heaven where Jesus didn't have to declare anything about himself, but God spoke from the heavens and he said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus doesn't have to walk up in here talking about I'm declaring myself to be anything. God is declared on the person of Jesus that this is my beloved son. And then he says, listen to him. Think about the context. All these kings of these other nations are calling themselves gods or the sons of God. Yet the megaphone comes from their own lips. Here, the people are standing with the person of Jesus and the thunder comes from heaven that says their megaphones are cheap, mediocre imitations of me. I'm telling you, that's my son. They got no juice. He got the juice. And he said he's well pleased with him. And our duty as believers is to listen to him. Jesus and his teaching apostles are where we're to get our cues, beloved. Social commentary is great. 
And I'm all for lifting up my brothers and sisters with various terms of endearment. I love that. But let's not get it twisted. Let's play our position. Jesus is the son of God and God the son. We listen and follow him. There's only one son of God. And John is writing this letter so that you may believe that this Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That concept of believing is important. Notice how you don't get life in, in how, notice how you don't get life. You don't get life through action. You see that? You don't get life by logging 16 hours of prayer time per day. You don't get life with your good Christian deed. You tried to share the faith with that person. You told the truth that one time when you could have lied. That's not the means by which you have attained eternal life. He says you get life through belief. Why? We'll soon see as we continue. There's heresies running around the early church. Heresies are just lies and false teachings. False teachings that how do you get life? Well, you have to acquire a certain amount of special knowledge to get it. And so John makes it a point. This is in this gospel. The gospel of John was written way later than the other gospels. That that heresy was it was festering by the time John was writing this letter. In fact, you see him combating it in his other letters. And he's saying, no, it's not about what you do. It's not about how intelligent, how smart you are. It's not about how many books you read. It's not about how much, how much times you're on your knees. And you, some of those people, they, they said that they had, their knees had calluses on them. They prayed so long. That's not the means by which you attained life. You get it through belief, through trust in Jesus. And we're going to look at that. will come up again and again, so I'm not going to belabor that. That you may have life in his name. Beloved, that's the name of the game right there. Life in his name. That's the hot ticket. That's the big ticket. And again, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be defining this term life and what does life look like in his name. But briefly, I want to do a summary or understanding of what life is. Life is a word that's profoundly deep and almost, inexplic almost inexplicable when it comes to the gospel of John because of its depth. The word is multifaceted. It includes forgiveness Holiness, well-being, immortality, heaven, consciousness of truth. I mean, it's, it's a broad concept. If we know anything about life, we know this. That which is joined to God lives. Whatever has proximity to God lives. And that's, his, that's John's point. Get as close to Jesus as possible that you may live. Proximity to Jesus is everything for John. He's the one he wants you to see. And so I've defined life in this one sentence. It's not the most robust, but it's definitely true. Life is to know and be known by God. Amen. That's life. In this life and in the life to come, life is to know God through the person of Jesus and to rest because you're known by, the, by God himself. He knows your name. I don't know about you, beloved, but my prayer is that as we walk through this gospel, you become acutely aware of your proximity to Jesus. And whether or not you are known by God or not, and whether or not he knows your name, 
Beloved, if you have a, an urge in your heart to know God and your desire is that he knows you because you, what you don't want is him to say, depart from me, I never knew you. What you want him to say is enter into the rest of your beloved Savior. If you want to know God, your opportunity starts now. In fact, if there's anything in you that wants to know God or be known by God, that's the beginning work of the gospel that we outlined at the beginning of the message. You didn't conjure that up in yourself. God just may be quickening you, opening your eyes to eternal life. And my prayer is that you embrace his work in your soul that has already begun in you that you see the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ for who he is, and you respond to God's grace through his pricking of your soul with repentance, which means turning from your sin, and faith, which means trusting and believing in his name. Is he doing it for you? Follow it. Don't even try to resist it. You will lose. Come bowing the knee to the king and behold the beauty of the Savior. I can't promise your life gets smoother, but I can promise for the first time you'll understand what joy means. Not the fleeting truth of happiness, that comes and goes, but joy in the midst of all the things that you're facing, all the things that have been trying to bind you. For some reason, you can still sing because you know God still has you firmly in his grasp. John wrote this gospel so that by, so that you, uh, sorry, so I wrote this gospel that you may believe that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Beloved, I encourage you to stay tight in the series. And I pray that if you're a believer, you grow closer to Jesus. And if you yet to know where you stand with Jesus, he opens your eyes to the beauty of his gospel. And then you get closer to Jesus, too. And we just have one big Jesus-loving party up in this mouth.